Football MX Network production. Josie's on a vacation far away. Come around and talk it over. So many things that I want to say. A new view from inside the truck. X racer to racer and eye to eye. A casual look into the personalities of the sport and an experienced perspective into the action from week to week. It's Jason Thomas's Industry Seating. Presented by Pirelli Tires, Fly Racing, Blends All Racing Motor Oil, Works Connection, Plum Creek Funding, 612 Suspension, Fast Foundry, and Pro Glow. Welcome, everybody, to Industry Seating. It is Sunday afternoon on the second weekend off in a row in the middle of a Monster Energy Supercross series, and that's pretty rare. I don't know that I could think of a time where we've had two weekends off. Okay, if you want to say, you know, 2020 with in the middle of COVID, we had lots of time off, but in a normal season, to have two weekends off is pretty strange back-to-back. You know, Easter's always off. We always have Easter off, so that's nice, but... That extra weekend really helped a lot. And I think for, you know, everyone that's been trying to get ready for uh, Lucas Oil Pro Motocross, because that's lingering, right? It's the end of May and it's it's starting to pop into everybody's periphery here as far as they have to be prepared. So this was a nice break and a nice opportunity for them to get some testing in, get some riding in, switch over uh, their preparation a little bit. And this is where it gets interesting to see who just foregoes the rest of Supercross as far as effort. And I don't mean on race day, everybody's going to be trying on race day, but I mean, during the week, right? Are they still going to be hammering out supercross motos? Some of these guys, or are they going to just completely go all in getting ready for Paula, which is on May 29th. And we, you know, we'll maybe be able to notice a little bit on social media. Maybe you'll pick up a little bit on interviews, but the guys that are really going to know are the ones that are at the practice tracks every day. And you might see it show up a little bit at the races, right? Guys just either tick up or tick down a little bit. Uh, but that stuff interests me because I, I think there's a lot to be said for the mental side uh, where some guys are just like, ah, whatever, you know, this, this supercross season didn't go my way, uh, but I'm going to make damn sure that I'm ready when the summer kicks off, you know, and there are a lot of guys that are in that no man's land, let's say of where they could, they could shift their efforts either direction, you know, guys like Dean Wilson, guys like Dylan Ferrandis, all those guys that have the potential to do well, but it just hasn't gone their way. Marvin Muscan, another one in that in that range. So let's see what happens. I do want to thank the sponsors of this podcast before we get too far into this thing. Pirelli Tires, Guts Racing, Plum Creek Funding, Fast Foundry, Works Connection, Blenzol, Risk Racing, 612 Suspension, Premier Vapor Blasting of Georgia, Pro Glow Wash, Grant Stone Boots, and Fly Racing. And I will have some... Uh, promo codes at the end of this podcast for all of you that are interested in picking up some products. I want to save you guys some money on that too. This podcast will be a little bit shorter. I'm going to do a couple listener questions since we don't have any moto racing per se to really talk about. And I'm going to actually talk about MotoGP a little bit. Had a couple of requests for that, which will be interesting. And listen, I'm not a, a road racer. I have been to several MotoGP races. I do know some of the racers. I did spend a week at Valentino Rossi's house and got to ride with all of the, the MotoGP stars, even guys like Marquez and all those guys back when they were, you know, Rossi and Marquez were still somewhat friends. 
Uh, so that was a really cool experience. And that's what really kind of was the springboard for me getting into road racing and really liking it was, was getting to hang out with all those guys and seeing how talented those guys were. And I think it's just a, a respect in both directions, right? All those guys are big fans of Supercross and they all watch it. And of course I really love MotoGP and I got to watch the second Qatar race today. Uh, so I'll talk about that a little bit too, but let's jump into these questions really quick. Uh, I just have two questions that I pulled from my archives here. I, I always save these when you guys send them in, so please do. Uh, and then I'm going to pick one of these for the Pro Glow question of the week, and we will be doing that every single week. So if you want a prize pack from Pro Glow or you want to be eligible for it, please send in your questions. You can email them to jason36 at aol.com, or you can direct message them to my Instagram, which is jason66thomas. Or you can send it to the industry seating uh, Instagram as well. So the first question I have today is from Victor. And he asked, do you think that Cooper Webb is the most mentally strong rider since Chad Reed? I'm a big fan of the show. I've listened to every episode. I don't believe this has been brought up before. So an interesting question here. You know, and to me, I can see that correlation being made. But I also think they're very different. And maybe that's because you know, I have such a long history with Chad Reed and, and yeah, I don't see him much anymore. We don't, we don't hang out or talk like we used to, but there was, I don't know, a decade there where we spent most every day together, you know, and even when I had moved to Boise and was, uh, you know, I, I was done racing. I was still at the race all the time. And we texted, you know, 20 times a day, maybe more, you know, all the time. And we'd hang out every single weekend. So, you get to know somebody really, really well. And we traveled the world together in that Valentino Rossi trip that I went on, uh, was with Chad and I know him extremely well. I know how his, his mind works. I know what makes him tick, what, you know, what, uh, really motivates him and, and things he doesn't like as well. So there's just a lot of intricacies there that I'm super familiar with, with Chad. And, and I don't really have that with Webb. I have hung out with him a few times, uh, so on the surface, yes, I do think they have a lot of the same characteristics where they are mentally strong, but where some of the differences come in for me is that I think, you know, Webb likes to play games with guys and I think he really tries to get into other guys' heads and he wants to be the aggressor in every situation. You know, if, if he senses any weakness in a guy like Eli Tomac or a guy like Ken Roxon or whoever you know, Adam Cincerello, whoever the, uh, opponent is, he wants to go at them every time. And he, even if they don't show weakness, even if, you know, like when Eli Tomac was at his best last, uh, last May and June in Salt Lake, Webb was yelling at him on the starting line and really trying to put him under duress and see if he could get those guys to crack. He just seems to be, want to be the catalyst for someone else having difficulties and Chad was not that way. Chad was very mentally strong, so so similar to Webb, but Chad was always worried about himself. Um, you know, and, and we used to have these in-depth conversations where I would be watching guys like Stewart and, and Carmichael and these guys because I wasn't in that battle, and I would see things that Chad could do better, and I would bring him up to Chad. And sometimes he would be receptive and other times not. But he was always more concerned with what he was doing and he needed to be at his best and not try to do 
what James Stewart did, right? He did. He's like, that's, that's what Stu's good at. That's not what I'm good at. I need to be the best that I can be and focus on my strengths and weaknesses. And we would get into a little back and forth because I would say, okay, well, some of your weaknesses are some of what Stu's strengths are. So let's, let's try to correct your weaknesses by doing some of the things that Stu does. Right. And so I think there was some back and forth and both of us had a a point there, but I don't think that Chad was ever actively wanting to go after somebody mentally, right? He wasn't trying to play games with people. He wasn't trying to get in someone else's head. Really? He was just more worried about his own head and his own, uh, psyche. And I watched that firsthand so many times, you know, he would have a weekend where things weren't going well. He wasn't riding well, whatever was going on, whatever mental block he had with whether it was a a rhythm section or he just woke up on the wrong side of the bed, whatever was going on, I could just see it. I I would had a front row seat for it. Uh, you know, and one of the, the most memorable of those was St. Louis supercross in 2006. And that's going back a long time, right? It's 15 years ago. But if you go back and watch that race on bar to bar or whatever, you know, YouTube is such a great resource these days. You can, you can probably watch it really quickly, but all day Chad was really struggling with this rhythm section right out of a corner. And for us mere mortals, myself included, I think I got 10th, 10th that night, 12th, I think 10th, either way, whatever place I got that night, a guy like myself, we would come out of the corner and go two, three, three, right? And that was the main rhythm section. Uh, and I, there was something past that too, like maybe a, another double. So what would that be? Six, eight, 10 jumps, something like that, where a guy like Chad or his level, the line, what you needed to do was come out of the turn, seat bounce three, really hard, three in three, three, and then single into the corner. And you have to remember back then we didn't have fuel injection yet, right? This is 2006. We're using carburetors and your biggest fear with like a really difficult seat bounce triple out of a corner was that your bike was going to bog, your bike was going to cut out. And the Yamahas were a little bit notorious for it back then, right? It was, you were able to trust them for the most part, but there were times when that bike would cut out or miss or have a bog. And, and Heath Voss had big issues with this at his time at Yamaha. And, and Chad was terrified of this because this jump, this triple out of the corner, it required full commitment. There was no halfway if you want to do this thing. And, and that's why I didn't do it. I, w- I was too scared and uh, I would have probably ended up crashing at some point. Yeah, I probably would have got it right most of the time, but there would have been a time where I probably screwed it up. And he, Chad didn't do it all day. And for a chat, for a guy like Chad, who was in the championship battle, right? Remember that was one of the best supercross seasons of all time. That 2006 season chat for Chad, not to jump a rhythm section that guys like Ivan Tedesco and guys that he was better than they were doing it. And you can go back and I don't know if you could, you probably can't watch practice, but he never did it. You watch the heat race. He never did it. And this was a big deal. Like Yamaha guys were stressed out because he was going to get smoked. If he didn't jump this rhythm section, the way that Stu Carmichael Tedesco just go down the line, uh, Andrew short, you know, they were all doing this and I don't know if short had moved up yet, but that, that caliber of guy and into tier two, you know, that four through nine, four through 10 range, they were starting to jump in and Chad still hadn't done it. So I remember Ellie just freaking out on him after the heat race because he lost Ivan Tedesco beat him in the heat race handily because Chad didn't jump this jump and it was going to be a big, big 
problem. Like he was going to lose a ton of points. And all of a sudden, you know, this like there, I, I remember Ellie, Ellie just yelling at him, berating him about doing this jump. And it, it really just pissed Chad off to the point where he's like, all right, screw it. I'm jumping the damn thing. Chad gets out, gets the start, hucks this thing, nails it every time, goes on to win the race. And yes, Stewart had big problems. Ricky Carmichael's shock had problems and he DNF the race. But if Chad had not jumped that jump, he wasn't going to win. Tedesco would have beat him or whoever. I don't even know, like Travis Preston or somebody else could have beat him because he was just not having a good day. It was bad, bad, bad. Like one of the worst times I've seen Chad ride. Like he, he was just way, way off the pace. And he flipped a switch and then all of a sudden everything clicked and he went out and won. And, and again, he had help. I get it. But that's where I see the difference. And extremely long story short, that's where I see the difference between Cooper Webb and Chad was that you don't really see Webb have these big mental blocks with a rhythm section or something like that. Like if anything, he'll be a little bit off in the whoops. And that's not a mental thing. That's just, he's just not great at it. Where this rhythm section was total, it was mental for Chad. Like his ability far surpassed being able to, to go three, 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 one. Like he should have been doing that within five laps of the first practice. That's where his skill level was. But for some reason, mentally, I think just his fear of the bike bogging or cutting out, tripling in, which was valid. I, I will say there was some validity to that, but it, grew to a level and, and got to him where he never, he never even tried it. And he never jumped it until the main event. He pulls it right away, like first or second lap and, and never turned back. Right. He did it once. It's like, okay, I got this thing and I'm going for it. But I saw that happen with Chad a lot. So as strong as Chad was mentally, he had moments where, man, he was really vulnerable to a mental breakdown. And I don't say breakdown, but a mental, um, a letdown, right? He just, his mental game was holding him back. And he had the opposite of that where I think Webb does too, where they can come through a really difficult situation, a really bad weekend and bounce back immediately. And that was what Chad was great at. You know, no matter how bad he got beaten on a Saturday night, he would enter the next Saturday night thinking he was going to win. And that's where all of the mental toughness with Chad comes in. And I think he and Webb do share some of that, but I, I just think they're, the fiber of their mental toughness is a little bit different. Just the makeup's a little bit different. And I think that just comes from, from knowing Chad, uh, probably too well. Um, great question though. Uh, you know, brings me back, uh, old memories and, um, thinking about, you know, all the times where, man, we're at the races and all, you know, we're all struggling with some stuff and good nights and bad nights, but, uh, it's fun to walk down memory lane with some of those things. Uh, second question is from Chandler. And this one, I have to, this question is a little bit sensitive. So if I don't answer it as bluntly as you would like, you'll see why. Uh, he asks, not sure if you can answer this, but why do we not see any pro guys really wearing fast house gear? He has a couple other questions, but I'll cover this first. I think it's just because, you know, fast house is a relatively small company, right? It's not part of a larger distribution company. And even you could even look at a company like Fox, their casual clothing revenue side is so large that it allows them to do things that maybe all the, don't always make sense, right? They can spend huge dollars on riders and teams like 
Monster Pro Circuit Kawasaki and Roxon, and you go through all the riders they have in Europe, Tim Geiser and all these guys, um, you know, Alpine Stars, right? Another example. They spend a ton of money on guys to wear their gear. Eli Tomac, uh, Jason Anderson, you know, formerly Justin Barsha, all the guys in Europe they have. Jeffrey Hurlings is a huge, that's a huge um, dollar amount. Tomac's probably larger, but they're both massively uh, paid and good for them. I'm, I'm happy that they get so much money. But when I look at it, you know, there are many aspects to the business that are paying for that, right? They're uh, footwear sales, all the street boots, motocross boots specifically, all the street jackets and huge street apparel that they have, right? So it's not always they sell X amount of pants and jerseys, and that's why they can spend so much money on a guy like Tomac or Hurlings. You know, it's not always two plus two equals four. Sometimes it's two plus two equals nine, and there's all there are all these other factors that come into play for Western Power Sports and fly racing, which, you know, Western power sports is the parent company to fly racing. It's no different. Right. And we have grown into a level where it does make sense now, but for years, the spending that went on for fly racing didn't really make sense for how much product fly racing was selling. But thankfully there was this big parent company of Western power sports that could afford to fund it. And it was an investment from Western power sports into future sales. And that's, that's allowed fly racing to grow, right? Our, our super cross sponsorships. And a lot of those things you look at it and you're like, man, that's a lot of money to spend. But if you look at the big picture of we're trying to grow, not only Western power sports and the presence for motorcycle dealers to choose it as their primary distribution channel, but you're also wanting to get fly racing growth and fly racing pl- placement. So they all kind of work together. So like I said, it's not always as transparent as it might seem, uh, there, sometimes there's a lot of revenue and a lot of resource coming from something that's tied to it, but not directly. So to answer your question with a company like fast house, they don't have that secondary resource or all of that, for lack of a better term, money behind it to go out and hire, uh, for, you know, in our case, a Zach Osborne or these guys that are, they're expensive. Right. And, and they deliver that, you know, Zach won Lucas Oil Pro Motocross Championship last year and he won multiple 250 championships, but it's expensive. And if you don't have a huge amount of revenue coming in or a huge provider of revenue behind the scenes, you look at it and you're like, I don't know that that financially computes, right? Uh, that doesn't really add up. If you're like the, the CPA or the CFO of a company like that, you're like, man, that we can't afford to spend that. Like, that doesn't make any sense. We're not going to, we're not going to recoup those sales by spending all this money on a rider. And it's not only just paying the rider, it's all the product that you have to go build for that rider. It's all that, because if you sponsor a rider, you need to, you're going to need to market them. So you have to build all these advertisements and then go pay all the media publications to promote them. Otherwise, what's the point? So there's a ton of things that go into something like this. So when I look at a company like Fast House or a smaller gear brand, I just it just makes sense to me because I'm like, yeah, that if you're in this for the long haul and you actually want to be profitable in the short term, yeah, you're not going to go spend several hundred thousand or more, right? The big guys, the Tomax and Hurlings and Roxons and those guys can easily be a, a million dollars or more for you know pant jersey, glove, helmet, and, and some combination there. That 
that's not going to make sense for a company like Fast House. And there there are several brands that would you could just be interchangeable there that it doesn't make sense to spend that much money. And that's that's the simple answer for why you don't see it. It's just it's not financially prudent to do something like that. Now, some of the lesser guys, I don't know. You know, maybe that's a a decision by Fast House to kind of stick to their core guys, right? You you see Josh Grant wearing their stuff. Um, you see some of the free ride guys wearing their stuff. They're heavily involved with some uh, off road events, um, but everybody has their their marketing strategy. And sometimes it's really grassroots, and you want to keep your capital expenditure down at certain times, right? And maybe. Maybe COVID-19 was really difficult for them. I, I don't know what their books look like. So maybe they are taking this time to try to just make sure that business is going to continue on because there are a lot of brands that suffered through COVID-19. It wasn't a huge windfall for everyone. Some some people it was, some people it wasn't. Some some people had a really difficult time maintaining liquidity during COVID-19. So you never really know what's going on behind the scenes, uh, but to see a brand like Fasthouse not spending huge money in you know Supercross racing, it's not shocking to me. Second question: uh, What makes the Star 250 so different from every other 250? Hypothetically, hypothetically, could a privateer Yamaha team with unlimited budget build something as fast? Or does Yamaha does factory Yamaha give Star something that is proprietary and makes it impossible to match? Uh, so tough and tough question to answer. You know, the, the first part of it, what makes the 250 star 250s different? Well, you know, that Yamaha, the engine is completely different than all the other bikes, right? It has the, the air filter on top and, um, you know, going back to 2010, the Yamaha started this reverse kind of engine with their 450. And then they trans transition that into the 250. And to me, that's where you're seeing the power gains because that's what, that's why Yamaha did it originally. And the Yamaha 50, 450 was no different. It's a really powerful 450. But I think that's the biggest part of it where the other teams can't really close the gap is because fundamentally, I think Yamaha's engine design is just better for what they're trying to accomplish, which is power, right? And you could argue that it is, especially early on the 450, the chassis really suffered because of this engine design. And I... I would agree with that. I really didn't care for that early Yamaha 450 at all. Um, and I, I think they've steadily improved it. Like I, I enjoy riding the Yamaha now, but that was the struggle early was they've completely rearranged how the engine is put into that chassis. And, and they struggled for years trying to get it to handle correctly and find any sort of predictability in that Yamaha. So first part, the engines are completely different. So that's what, that's why you're seeing the Yamaha so much stronger. Now he's asking, could a privateer team with unlimited budget build something as fast? Okay. So when you say unlimited budget, right, I'm going to take it at face value. Sure. If you had truly unlimited budget and that's right, that's impossible. It's never going to happen. You're not going to see that. This isn't formula one where, you know, a team's going to throw a hundred million dollars at a race team. Yes. Hypothetically, they could spend insane amounts of money and, and just buy a thousand cylinders and cams and ECUs and just test around the clock, 24 hours a day with, you know, the highest paid engineers they could find. They could go poach guys from, you know, MotoGP and all these guys that are incredibly talented engine builders, right? Never going to happen. That's all crazy talk, but yes, it's possible. Now why they don't is because that's what Yamaha has, right? Yamaha has 
people working around the clock, engineers in Japan developing these parts and they're constantly working on the 22 bikes and the 23 bikes and the 24 bikes and they're testing, testing, testing. So they have this that's already going on, right? So they know all of these things of how to make the bike better and how to consistently improve it and that they have this process. So yes, when you're asking, is it something proprietary coming from Yamaha? Yeah, absolutely it is. You know, the engine settings and this technology is coming from Yamaha Japan on some level, not, not everything, but a lot of it, right? The, uh, improvements to the cam and the head and uh, ECU settings. And a lot of that stuff is built by engineers, you know, whether they are full-time in Japan or whether they're on loan to, uh, you know, the American Yamaha team, they're getting the specs from those guys that are, they're able to build incredibly fast engines with the help of, the monster star Yamaha techs here too. Right. And it's a combined effort between both sides, right? Because Yamaha will have engine builders and you go back 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. There's a guy named John Rosensteel who built the engines and right. And I was very close to that with Chad Reed and Tim Ferry when that was all going on. And, and his nickname was John R and he was responsible for the engine building. Well, he wasn't doing it on his own. He was taking input from you know, the Japanese engineers, and then he was going and cutting cylinders and doing all the things that engine builders do. And they would have these massive test sessions over and over and over. And then a million dyno runs, no different than what Mitch, Mitch Payton does also. But that combination of a million different opportunities, because factory Yamaha, I don't want to say they have unlimited budget, but on some level they kind of do, right? If they need a hundred cylinders to test, they could probably get it or a hundred cams or whatever they can, within reason, they can probably get it. We're a, a privateer team. That's just not, it's not realistic, right? And there is no return unless you had someone, you know, and I'm going to use a formula one reference here, like Lauren Stroll, who's a billionaire and just wants to throw money at it for no reason. Like there's absolutely no way to ever get a return on your money other than you just have so much money. You don't care. It's just never going to happen for a privateer team. Now you can build a really fast engine, you know, Chad Reed did this in 2011. If you go back and you look at the very beginnings of 22 Motorsports, Chad didn't have a factory bike and he wanted to ride a Honda. So he went to Mitch and this would have been late 2010. I'm going to say August, September, 2010, late summer. And he told Mitch, Hey, I want to build the best Honda I can. And we have basically whatever money we need to do it. So, you know, Mitch loves Chad. He just loves the commitment that Chad brings and the mental output. And he, you just know with Chad, you're, you're always getting his best effort, no matter what. And I think Mitch really respects that. So Mitch says, yeah, it's, it's going to be expensive, but let's do it. So they tested and tested and tested. And I was around for all this. And I remember Chad telling me that the final bill for all the testing to build that bike and that suspension, you know, all the sets of suspension, all the cams and heads and ECUs and frames and everything that they built to develop this motorcycle was around 300 grand. That's a, that's pretty damn expensive. And he had a really competitive motorcycle, right? If you go back and watch him in early 2011, he was competitive. He was able to race with the factory guys on their level with a privateer based motorcycle, really expensive privateer based motorcycle, but he was able to do it. Now, the reason I bring that up is because fast forward into that 2011 season, there were two or three rounds to go and we had this Easter break. So ironically, right around this time, uh, 
So go back 10 years from now and factory Honda finally came around and said, Hey, like you're obviously back, right? Cause 2010 was a complete disaster. And even guys like Steve Mathis were claiming Chad was going to retire. Well, Honda's like, okay, clearly you're not retiring. Clearly you're a threat to win this championship because he and Villapoto were battling for uh, that 2011 title. So they offered him to test the 2011 factory bike. And if he liked it, he could race it moving forward. So I remember the first test that went on and Chad was like, he, he was blown away, right? I, I'm trying to think of a cliche to use, but he was overwhelmed at how good and how much better the factory bike was than what he had, which was already incredible. Like that, that bike, that pro circuit built was already great. It was so much better than my 2011 Suzuki. And that's not saying much, but still it was already lethal as, as a, you know, a 2011 Honda 450 goes, he got on that 450, the factory 450 and was like, just mind blown at how much better it was. And thankfully I got to ride it and I concur. Like that bike was simply incredible. So it just goes to show as much money as you even want to throw at it. And Chad threw 300 grand at that Honda 450. It still just wasn't on the level of the factory bike because there's, there are parts that are unobtainable there. You just can't get them. And, and the factory only has access to the materials and the technology, and they have thousands of hours of data to draw from, to build the best of the best. So, uh, I guess that's a really long way to answer a question is maybe even if you just spent all the money in the world, you wouldn't be able to, to get as good because yeah, as great as Mitch Payton is, he's not factory Honda, right? He doesn't have the, the resources and the decades of building Honda 450 engines specifically, right? Just worried about one OEM. And this is all we build is this, you know, the engineers that are working on that Honda 450, this is all we do. We developed, they developed that motorcycle from the ground up, right? And Mitch is worried about all kinds of things, right? He's building primarily Kawasaki engines, but for him to jump in to a Honda 450 and try to replicate what factory Honda is able to do and with virtually unlimited resources on Honda side, it's pretty unrealistic. Um, yeah, that kind of answers that question. I'm going to, uh, award Chandler the pro glow question of the week. Uh, I will, uh, be reaching out to Chandler and, and I'll put you in contact with Ryan over at pro glow to get your information and get that sent out to you. Um, but yeah, the question, I, I think the question on fast house is what got me because I like, I love talking about the gear industry. It's what I do all day, but I, man, it's really hard for me sometimes because I can't give my true opinion sometimes because it's really unprofessional to do that. If, if I have a negative opinion of another company, it comes off as petty, right? And it looks like I'm trying to take a cheap shot at someone and, and I'm really not most of the time. It's just my honest opinion. I, I just can't give it because you know, I, I do write for racer X and they, a lot of these companies advertise with racer X and Steve Mathis. And it, it's also really unprofessional to talk negatively about a competitor publicly. Um, so this question about fast house allowed me to speak on something that's not negative. Um, it, I don't think it's, it says anything negative about fast house at all. It's just, they are a smaller brand and they're an independent brand that doesn't have uh, you know, this huge parent company backing them on the back end to either speed up growth or, um, unfairly, uh, 
give a different picture of what they're capable of promoting. Right. So, um, anyway, that's it for the questions this week. Let's, uh, let's jump into, uh, to MotoGP a little bit here. Um, for those of you who don't care about MotoGP, just fast forward this. I get it. Right. Some of you guys are purely moto and that's fine. Right. I, I, I can certainly understand that, you know, Mathis, I'm actually headed to Vegas tomorrow to do the Pulp MX show. Should check that out. But Steve Mathis doesn't like MotoGP, and and I try to tell him all the time how great it is, and he doesn't care. So I can certainly understand that point of view. But for those of you who do, let's get into it. So this was the second round of the series. Uh, Both of them were at Qatar, and I'm only saying Qatar that way because that's how they say it. I would have normally said Qatar. Uh, A lot of people, some people say Qatar also. So who the hell knows? But they've been in the desert for a long time. Because if you remember, they had test sessions there, uh, the official test for MotoGP, and then they've had two races in a row. And those guys get there super early for a race weekend because they have press events and practices and all the crap they have to go through because MotoGP does a great job of promoting their series. So I think everybody's ready to get the hell out of there, uh, long story short. So they all get to fly home here in a few hours because it's the middle of the night there now. But, you know, I think the the real winners leaving this would be Pramac Ducati. I, I mean, what an incredible way to start off the series for the Pramac team. And to say that Ducatis would be strong at Qatar is not shocking, right? We've seen that for years, how strong those bikes are at that track because they have such a torque and horsepower advantage, especially I say horsepower because it's, you know, fourth, fifth, and sixth gear. If you watch the race, you could just see them blow past everybody, you know, and if you watch, uh, time qualifying or any of the FP sessions, you just see how much faster their bikes are on the start finish straight, especially at the end, you know, they're, they were doing up upwards of 20 kilometers an hour faster than a lot of the other bikes. So, and, and that's been going on for a long time. It's just, you know, the, the differences in the end, engine construction and the way the chassis are built and the approach to building motorcycles that Ducati has versus Honda or Yamaha or Suzuki or KTM or whoever, you know, they are, they aren't always as strong in the corners. They can't carry as much corner speed, but on open straightaways, they, they smash everyone. And this Qatar track really favors, uh, you know, high speed, you know, or lots of horsepower and lots of, uh, top speed. So the Ducatis were always great here and, and we really saw no different. I was just a little surprised to see the Primac guys really dominating and Pecco and Jack Miller not able to capitalize as much. And you don't really know because they run, uh, you know, I, I would think that the Primac guys are running GP20s and Jack and uh, Pecco are running GP21s. I don't know that for sure. And, and I need to do my homework on that. But I do know that the Primac guys are often asked to test items for the factory guys and they don't really have a choice, right? Ducati needs uh, testing done. They need race testing done, real world data. And sometimes those guys, maybe this was a time where whatever they're testing is really working. Uh, where other rounds we see, whether it's Jerez or Portimao or whatever, maybe the item that they're asked to test doesn't work. So we'll just have to see how that ball plays out. But what an effort from uh, both Zarco and uh, Jorge Martin, right? Jorge Martin's a rookie, and, and I don't think anybody expected what we've seen from him so far, especially the second round. Just an incredible effort from him. Now, the Ducati factory guys, I, I'm pretty tight with Jack Miller, even though I don't ever see him anymore. Uh, I need to get my 
rear end back over to Europe and get to a race. Um, but I am friends with Jack and, and he is the rider I'm pulling for in this series. They haven't had it as easy, right? Jack went nine, nine, which I know he's really frustrated with. And he had a huge incident with, uh, Joanne Mir at, uh, the, you know, just today, I guess it was nighttime in, in Qatar, but the race that went off today, you know, they had huge contact and both of them are really pissed off at each other, but it just really hasn't been the, the opening that J I think Jack was expecting. I think he thought he could get a win and possibly two podiums out of these openers because the Ducati is so historically strong at Qatar it just hasn't worked out. He's been suffering from tire wear. Uh, the first round was really bad. I think this one, it was just, uh, you know, more, the pack was so tight and he kind of got caught out at the end. Uh, you know, I haven't heard much about what his tire looked like at the end of the second round, but he seemed like he was more in it this time where the first round he was, he was fading quickly and just trying to survive the first round. So we'll see how those guys bounce back when we go to Portugal. But, uh, yeah, certainly not the opening for Jack. And then yeah, Pekka was okay. Um, I think he was on pole with the first round, if I'm not mistaken, but, uh, not, not bad, but to be beaten by, you know, the, the satellite team is not exactly what you're looking for, right? If you're Gigi Delinia of Ducati, you can't be thrilled about that. And it, it just poses some really hard questions for both the team and the riders when they get back to, uh, to Bologna, uh, tomorrow. Suzuki, incredible. Uh, and to me, it's really impressive that they've been able to, um, carry on, right. They lost their, uh, team manager to formula one. Um, is Davide Brivio. I think that's his name. Um, but he left the team after winning the world championship last year and was hired to be a part of a formula one team for this year. So I re was really curious to see if they would have any drop off with losing his guidance. And it doesn't seem like they're going to, if you look at Mir, who, you know, as I mentioned, got caught up in that drama, and then Alex Renz had a, a great race here at the second round on a track where they should really be suffering because that Suzuki, you can just see it's, it's down on power. I mean, they were getting blown by on uh, the start finish straight, but as we know the the Suzuki is by far the best bike for tire wear and late in the races, if you let those Suzuki's hang around, they are absolutely lethal. So I thought it was a great start for Suzuki. They came out of these two races uh, with solid points and, after horrific qualifying, I mean, I mean Joanne Mir b was able to make uh, Q2 both times, but he had to go to Q1 to do it, which is not great, right? You ruin or uh, you're left with one less set of soft tires for Q2, and it just really adds a struggle to the weekend. And they just couldn't they couldn't qualify well because the bike was too slow. They just don't have the top end speed to get a good qualifying lap in. Where Ducati is cranking that ECU all the way up, right? They're adding all the fuel to, uh, to the ECU. And it just makes them damn near unbeatable on those qualifying laps. And Suzuki just does not have the power KTM. You could say the same thing. Although I think the KTM was really suffering from that new Michelin tire. You know, they've been pretty vocal about, they just were really thrown off by the new Michelin and that's not Michelin's fault. It just it caught them off guard, right? It, the, the tire is not working for the bike that they built. So we'll see how KTM responds from that. But I really like what I'm seeing from Suzuki. And I think that, uh, Joanne Mir and both he and both Alex Renz are going to be very, very difficult to beat at many of the rounds this year. KTM, as I kind of mentioned, just kind of a horrific opening two weekends, 
Bender was a little better uh, the second round, so surely they worked on trying to sort the bike out midweek this week, and Bender got up into eighth by the end, I believe. So not bad, uh, certainly a step forward, and I think you'll see them get better and better. Uh, there will be tracks where that KTM works much, much better than I think anyone would expect it to work at Qatar. You know, it's a bike that to me is very similar to the Honda and closer to the Suzuki where it handles well. It has uh, nice uh, power out of the corners, but on top end speed, it's that's just not where it shines. And uh, yeah, we'll see what happens with their ability to adapt uh, to the Michelins as well. Patronus. Ah, what a, what a horrible way to open the season for Patronus Yamaha. Obviously a lot of hype, you know, uh, Valentino Rossi makes his move to the Patronus Yamaha team and it goes about as poorly as you could possibly think it's going to go. Just can't get out of their own way. Morbidelli, you know, a lot of people had Morbidelli circled as a, the championship favorite for 2021 and he really hasn't done anything yet. So we'll see, you know, it's really hard to draw conclusions, or I think it's foolish to draw conclusions from a first round or, you know, the same track anyway, the first two rounds. So hopefully Morbidelli can get back into this thing and hopefully Valentina Rossi finds some form because this was an unmitigated disaster to open the season for both of those guys. I mean, they probably, they probably flew out tonight because they wanted to get out of, uh, you know, the Arabian Peninsula as fast as humanly possible after those two rounds. Now I'm going to get into my last point here. And and I think that this, this is going to be the most interesting aspect of the series is I still think that Mark Marquez wins this championship. You can see how badly that Repsol Honda needs him. You know, Paul Espargo, great racer, but I mean, he's battling to be inside the top 10 right now. And Mark Marquez is otherworldly when it comes to talent. And I think that if he can come back and get on the podium at Portimao, I still have him as your champion. Because if you look at this field and you look how inconsistent they are, and that's the key, right? There is nobody in this field that's going to consistently week in and week out, put their bike on the podium. And that's what it takes to beat Marquez in a series, especially if he's giving up the first two rounds, assuming that he's going to race the third round. And that's a big assumption, but assuming he comes back, Mark's going to be on the podium every time, unless he crashes And that man, the, the way the points are doled out in MotoGP, he can make up points quickly because these guys are all over the map, right? I, I don't think that Johan Zarco is going to be up there every single time. I think you're going to see Zarco have weekends where he gets 12th just because the track's not going to work to his favor. And, and I don't think he is the kind of talent that can, overcome a, a bike challenge, right? If, if the track is tight and doesn't reward what the Ducati does well, I think Zarco will have a really difficult time and he'll give up 10 or 15 points to Mark Marquez in a single weekend. And I think that'll happen multiple times throughout the season. You, you could bring up Fabio Cartararo or, you know, Maverick Vinales and say, well, they're going to be insanely consistent and they're going to be the ones. Well, I didn't see that last year. Fabio was all over the map, right? He really struggled down the stretch to, to maintain any form, right? He came, he did the same thing last year, came out swinging at the opening rounds and then it all went to hell. So maybe that happens again. You know, Vinales, you never know, right? When the green flag flies, you don't know if he's going to win or get 14th. You know, he's really struggled in the past with a full tank of fuel 
and going immediately backwards. Now, maybe they figured that out, maybe not. But I, I don't have any reason to think that those guys are fundamentally different than anything we've ever seen. The only thing I could possibly say would maybe is maybe Fabio has matured and this is, you know, finally the time where he'll have it every weekend, but I would bet the other way. I would bet he's going to have really poor weekends too. And he's going to have tracks that frustrate him. And, you know, that's really where Marquez comes in because he is able to outride or override or overcome any situation. Doesn't matter if the track doesn't work for him. Doesn't matter if he's having a bad day. The only thing that can stop Marquez is himself. If he crashes and throws it away and hurts himself, then yeah, all bets are off. But otherwise, give me Marquez to still win this title, even missing the first two rounds. So we'll see if I'm right or wrong. I appreciate everybody listening to this podcast, MotoGP style. Uh, Of course, we'll have racing starting again next weekend. We'll go to the Atlanta residency and uh, yeah, do the Saturday, Tuesday, Saturday thing. So have lots of industry seating podcasts going on and lots of content coming your way. I will be in Vegas tomorrow for the Pulp MX show. Myself, Chris Kiefer, and Steve Mathis, we will have Chad Reed as a guest, which will be exciting. And we'll be ramping this series back up, see if uh, see if Cooper Webb's able to extend his points lead as we roll into Atlanta. Now, a few of these promo codes. Works Connection is JT21. Save yourself some money at checkout. Risk Racing is JT dollar sign. 612 Suspension, just mentioned the podcast. Premier Vapor Blasting, just mentioned the podcast. Pro Glow Wash is Moto 15. And uh, yeah, so thank you to all of them for having uh, having the promo codes and, and saving all of you some money. Thank you to Pirelli, Plum Creek Funding, Guts Racing for being the, uh, the title and presenting sponsors as well. And we will talk to you next Sunday where I will be at the, uh, well, I don't want to tell you exactly what hotel, but I will be near the Atlanta, Re- Atlanta airport recording this podcast. Thanks everybody. And we'll see you soon.